Surely you're joking, Mr. Feynman. By Richard P. Feynman. Continued. Cassette 8, Side 1. Because of this tendency to learn things all the time, new ideas from the outside world would spread through the educational system very easily. Perhaps that is one of the reasons why Japan has advanced so rapidly. All in all, I must say I enjoyed the visit to Sweden in the end. Instead of coming home immediately, I went to CERN, the European Center for Nuclear Research in Switzerland, to give a talk. I appeared before my colleagues in the suit that I had worn to the King's dinner. I had never given a talk in a suit before, and I began by saying, Funny thing, you know, in Sweden we were sitting around talking about whether there are any changes as a result of our having won the Nobel Prize. And as a matter of fact, I think I already see a change. I rather like this suit. Everybody says, Boo! And Weisskopf jumps up and tears off his coat and says, We're not going to wear suits at lectures. I took my coat off loosened my tie and said, By the time I had been through Sweden, I was beginning to like this stuff. But now that I'm back in the world, everything's all right again. Thanks for straightening me out. They didn't want me to change, so it was very quick. At CERN, they undid everything that they had done in Sweden. It's nice that I got some money. I was able to buy a beach house. But altogether, I think it would have been much nicer not to have had the prize because you never any longer can be taken straightforwardly in any public situation. In a way, the Nobel Prize has been something of a pain in the neck, though there was at least one time that I got some fun out of it. Shortly after I won the prize, Gwyneth and I received an invitation from the Brazilian government to be the guests of honor at the Carnival celebrations in Rio. We gladly accepted and had a great time. We went from one dance to another, and reviewed the big street parade that featured the famous samba schools playing their wonderful rhythms and music. Photographers from newspapers and magazines were taking pictures all the time. Here, the professor from America is dancing with Miss Brazil. It was fun to be a celebrity, but we were obviously the wrong celebrities. Nobody was very excited about the guests of honor that year. I found out later how our invitation had come about. Gina Lola Brigida was supposed to be the guest of honor, but just before Carnival, she said no. The Minister of Tourism, who was in charge of organizing Carnival, had some friends at the Center for Physical Research who knew I had played in a samba band, and since I had recently won the Nobel Prize, I was briefly in the news. In a moment of panic, the minister and his friends got this crazy idea to replace Gina Lola Brigida with the Professor of Physics. Needless to say, the minister did such a bad job on that carnival that he lost his position in the government. Bringing Culture to the Physicists Nina Byers, a professor at UCLA, became in charge of the physics colloquium sometime in the early 70s. The colloquia are normally a place where physicists from other universities come and talk pure technical stuff. But partly as a result of the atmosphere of that particular period of time, she got the idea that the physicists needed more culture, so she thought she would arrange something along those lines. Since Los Angeles is near Mexico, she would have a colloquium on the mathematics and astronomy of the Mayans, the old civilization of Mexico. Remember my attitude to culture. This kind of thing would have driven me crazy if it were in my university. 
she started looking for a professor to lecture on the subject and couldn't find anybody at UCLA who was quite an expert. She telephoned various places and still couldn't find anybody. Then she remembered Professor Otto Neugebauer of Brown University, the great expert on Babylonian mathematics. Footnote. When I was a young professor at Cornell, Professor Neugebauer had come one year to give a sequence of lectures called the Messenger Lectures on Babylonian Mathematics. They were wonderful. Oppenheimer lectured the next year. I remember thinking to myself, wouldn't it be nice to come some day and be able to give lectures like that? Some years later, when I was refusing invitations to lecture at various places, I was invited to give the Messenger Lectures at Cornell. Of course, I couldn't refuse, because I had put that in my mind, so I accepted an invitation to go over to Bob Wilson's house for a weekend, and we discussed various ideas. The result was a series of lectures called The Character of Physical Law. She telephoned him in Rhode Island and asked if he knew someone on the West Coast who could lecture on Mayan mathematics and astronomy. Yes, he said, I do. He's not a professional anthropologist or a historian. He's an amateur, but he certainly knows a lot about it. His name is Richard Feynman. She nearly died. She's trying to bring some culture to the physicists, and the only way to do it is to get a physicist. The only reason I knew anything about Mayan mathematics was that I was getting exhausted on my honeymoon in Mexico with my second wife, Mary Lou. She was greatly interested in art history, particularly that of Mexico. So we went to Mexico for our honeymoon, and we climbed up pyramids and down pyramids. She had me following her all over the place. She showed me many interesting things, such as certain relationships and the designs of various figures. But after a few days and nights of going up and down in hot and steamy jungles, I was exhausted. In some little Guatemalan town in the middle of nowhere, we went into a museum that had a case displaying a manuscript full of strange symbols, pictures, and bars and dots. It was a copy, made by a man named Villacorta, of the Dresden Codex, an original book made by the Mayans, found in a museum in Dresden. I knew the bars and dots were numbers. My father had taken me to the New York World's Fair when I was a little kid, and there they had reconstructed a Mayan temple. I remembered him telling me how the Mayans had invented the zero and had done many interesting things. The museum had copies of the codex for sale, so I bought one. On each page at the left was the codex copy, and on the right a description in partial translation in Spanish. I love puzzles and codes, so when I saw the bars and dots I thought, I'm going to have some fun. I covered up the Spanish with a piece of yellow paper and began playing this game of deciphering the Mayan bars and dots sitting in the hotel room while my wife climbed up and down the pyramids all day. I quickly figured out that a bar was equal to five dots, what the symbol for zero was, and so on. It took me a little longer to figure out that the bars and dots always carry at twenty the first time, but they carry at eighteen the second time, making cycles of three-sixty. I also worked out all kinds of things about various faces. They had surely meant certain days and weeks. After we got back home, I continued to work on it. Altogether, it's a lot of fun to try to decipher something like that, because when you start out, you don't know anything. You have no clue to go by. But then you notice certain numbers that appear often and add up to other numbers and so on.
There was one place in the Codex where the number 584 was very prominent. This 584 was divided into periods of 236, 90, 250, and 8. Another prominent number was 2920, or 584 times 5, also 365 times 8. There was a table of multiples of 2920 up to 13 times 2920. Then there were multiples of 13 times 2920 for a while, and then funny numbers. They were errors, as far as I could tell. Only many years later did I figure out what they were. Because figures denoting days were associated with this 584, which was divided up so peculiarly, I figured if it wasn't some mythical period of some sort, it might be something astronomical. Finally, I went down to the astronomy library and looked it up and found that 583.92 days is the period of Venus as it appears from the Earth. Then the 236, 90, 250, 8 become apparent. It must be the phases that Venus goes through. It's a morning star. Then it can't be seen. It's on the far side of the sun. Then it's an evening star. And finally it disappears again. It's between the Earth and the sun. The 90 and the 8 are different because Venus moves more slowly through the sky when it's on the far side of the sun compared to when it passes between the Earth and the sun. The difference between the 236 and the 250 might indicate a difference between the eastern and western horizons in Maya land. I discovered another table nearby that had periods of 11,959 days. This turned out to be a table for predicting lunar eclipses. Still another table had multiples of 91 in descending order. I never did figure that one out, nor has anyone else. When I had worked out as much as I could, I finally decided to look at the Spanish commentary to see how much I was able to figure out. It was complete nonsense. This symbol was Saturn. This symbol was a god. It didn't make the slightest bit of sense. So I didn't have to have covered the commentary. I wouldn't have learned anything from it anyway. After that, I began to read a lot about the Mayans and found that the great man in this business was Eric Thompson, some of whose books I now have. When Nina Byers called me up, I realized that I had lost my copy of the Dresden Codex. I had lent it to Mrs. H. P. Robertson, who had found a Mayan codex in an old trunk of an antique dealer in Paris. She had brought it back to Pasadena for me to look at. I still remember driving home with it on the front seat of my car, thinking, I've got to be careful driving. I've got the new codex. But as soon as I looked at it carefully, I could see immediately that it was a complete fake. After a little bit of work, I could find where each picture in the new codex had come from in the Dresden Codex. So I lent her my book to show her, and I eventually forgot she had it. So the librarians at UCLA worked very hard to find another copy of Villacorta's rendition of the Dresden Codex and lent it to me. I did all the calculations all over again, and in fact I got a little bit further than I did before. I figured out that those funny numbers, which I thought before were errors, were really integer problems of something closer to the correct period, 583.923. The Mayans had realized that 584 wasn't exactly right. Footnote. While I was studying this table of corrections for the period of Venus, I discovered a rare exaggeration by Mr. Thompson. He wrote that by looking at the table, you can deduce how the Mayans calculated the correct period of Venus.
Use this number four times, and that difference once, and you get an accuracy of one day in four thousand years, which is really quite remarkable, especially since the Mayans observed for only a few hundred years. Thompson happened to pick a combination which fit what he thought was the right period for Venus, 583.92. But when you put in a more exact figure, something like 583.923, you find the Mayans were off by more. Of course, by choosing a different combination, you can get the numbers in the table to give you 583.923, with the same remarkable accuracy. After the colloquium at UCLA, Professor Byers presented me with some beautiful color reproductions of the Dresden Codex. A few months later, Caltech wanted me to give the same lecture to the public in Pasadena. Robert Rowan, a real estate man, lent me some very valuable stone carvings of Mayan gods and ceramic figures for the Caltech lecture. It was probably highly illegal to take something like that out of Mexico, and they were so valuable that we hired security guards to protect them. A few days before the Caltech lecture, there was a big splurge in the New York Times, which reported that a new codex had been discovered. There were only three codices, two of which are hard to get anything out of, known to exist at the time. Hundreds of thousands had been burned by Spanish priests as works of the devil. My cousin was working for the AP, so she got me a glossy picture copy of what the New York Times had published, and I made a slide of it to include in my talk. This new codex was a fake. In my lecture I pointed out that the numbers were in the style of the Madrid Codex, but were 236, 90, 250, 8. Rather a coincidence. Out of the hundred thousand books originally made, we get another fragment, and it has the same thing on it as the other fragments. It was obviously, again, one of these put-together things which had nothing original in it. These people who copy things never have the courage to make up something really different. If you find something that is really new, it's got to have something different. A real hoax would be to take something like the period of Mars, invent a mythology to go with it, and then draw pictures associated with this mythology with numbers appropriate to Mars, not in an obvious fashion, rather have tables of multiples of the period with some mysterious errors and so on. The numbers should have to be worked out a little bit, then people would say, geez, this has to do with Mars. In addition, there should be a number of things in it that are not understandable and are not exactly like what has been seen before. That would make a good fake. I got a big kick out of giving my talk on deciphering Mayan hieroglyphics. There I was, being something I'm not, again. People filed into the auditorium past these glass cases, admiring the color reproductions of the Dresden Codex and the authentic Mayan artifacts watched over by an armed guard in a uniform. They heard a two-hour lecture on Mayan mathematics and astronomy from an amateur expert in the field, who even told them how to spot a fake codex. And then they went out, admiring the cases again. Murray Gelman countered in the following weeks by giving a beautiful set of six lectures concerning the linguistic relations of all the languages of the world. Found out in Paris I gave a series of lectures in physics that the Addison-Wesley Company made into a book, and one time at lunch we were discussing what the cover of the book should look like. I thought that since the lectures were a combination of the real world and mathematics, it would be a good idea to have a picture of a drum, and on top of it, 
some mathematical diagrams, circles and lines for the nodes of the oscillating drumheads, which were discussed in the book. The book came out with a plain red cover, but for some reason, in the preface, there's a picture of me playing a drum. I think they put it in there to satisfy this idea they got that the author wants a drum somewhere. Anyway, everybody wonders why that picture of me playing drums is in the preface of the Feynman Lectures, because it doesn't have any diagrams on it, or any other things which would make it clear. It's true that I like drumming, but that's another story. At Los Alamos, things were pretty tense from all the work, and there wasn't any way to amuse yourself. There weren't any movies or anything like that. But I discovered some drums that the boys' school, which had been there previously, had collected. Los Alamos was in the middle of New Mexico, where there are lots of Indian villages. So I amused myself, sometimes alone, sometimes with another guy, just making noise, playing on these drums. I didn't know any particular rhythm, but the rhythms of the Indians were rather simple. The drums were good, and I had fun. Sometimes I would take the drums with me into the woods at some distance, so I wouldn't disturb anybody, and would beat them with a stick and sing. I remember one night walking around a tree looking at the moon and beating the drum, making believe I was an Indian. One day a guy came up to me and said, Around Thanksgiving, you weren't out in the woods beating a drum, were you? Yes, I was, I said. Oh, and my wife was right. Then he told me this story. One night, he heard some drum music in the distance and went upstairs to the other guy in the duplex house that they lived in, and the other guy heard it too. Remember, all these guys were from the East. They didn't know anything about Indians, and they were very interested. The Indians must have been having some kind of ceremony or something exciting, and the two men decided to go out to see what it was. As they walked along, the music got louder as they came nearer, and they began to get nervous. They realized that the Indians probably had scouts out watching so that nobody would disturb their ceremony. So they got down on their bellies and crawled along the trail until the sound was just over the next hill, apparently. They crawled up over the hill and discovered to their surprise that it was only one Indian, doing the ceremony all by himself, dancing around a tree, beating the drum with a stick, chanting. The two guys backed away from him slowly, because they didn't want to disturb him. He was probably setting up some kind of spell or something. They told their wives what they saw, and the wives said, Oh, it must have been Feynman. He likes to beat drums. Don't be ridiculous, the men said. Even Feynman wouldn't be that crazy. So the next week, they set about trying to figure out who the Indian was. There were Indians from the nearby reservation working at Los Alamos. So they asked one Indian, who was a technician in the technical area, who it could be. The Indian asked around, but none of the other Indians knew who it might be, except there was one Indian whom nobody could talk to. He was an Indian who knew his race. He had two big braids down his back and held his head high. Whenever he walked anywhere, he walked with dignity, alone, and nobody could talk to him. You would be afraid to go up to him and ask him anything. He had too much dignity. He was a furnace man. So nobody ever had the nerve to ask this Indian, and they decided it must have been him. I was pleased to find that they had discovered such a typical Indian, such a wonderful Indian, that I might have been. It was quite an honor to be mistaken for this man. So the fellow who'd been talking to me was just checking at the last minute. Husbands always like to prove their wives wrong, and he found out, as husbands often do, 
that his wife was quite right. I got pretty good at playing the drums and would play them when we had parties. I didn't know what I was doing. I just made rhythms, and I got a reputation. Everybody at Los Alamos knew I liked to play drums. When the war was over and we were going back to civilization, the people there at Los Alamos teased me that I wouldn't be able to play drums anymore because they made too much noise. And since I was trying to become a dignified professor in Ithaca, I sold the drum I had bought sometime during my stay at Los Alamos. The following summer, I went back out to New Mexico to work on some report, and when I saw the drums again, I couldn't stand it. I bought myself another drum and thought, I'll just bring it back with me this time so I can look at it. That year at Cornell, I had a small apartment inside a bigger house. I had the drum in there just to look at it, but one day I couldn't quite resist. I said, Well, I'll just be very quiet. I sat on a chair and put the drum between my legs and played it with my fingers a little bit. Bop, 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 biddle, bop. Then a little bit louder. After all, it was tempting me. I got a little louder, and boom! The telephone rang. Hello? This is your landlady. Are you beating drums down there? Yes, I'm so. It sounds so good. I wonder if I could come down and listen to it more directly. So from that time on, the landlady would always come down when I'd start to drum. That was freedom, all right. I had a very good time from then on beating the drums. Around that time, I met a lady from the Belgian Congo who gave me some ethnological records. In those days, records like that were rare, with drum music from the Watusi and other tribes of Africa. I really admired the Watusi drummers very, very much, and I used to try to imitate them, not very accurately, but just to sound something like them, and I developed a larger number of rhythms as a result of that. One time, I was in the recreation hall, late at night, when there weren't many people, and I picked up a wastebasket and started to beat the back end of it. Some guy from way downstairs came running all the way up and said, Hey, you play drums. It turned out he really knew how to play drums, and he taught me how to play bongos. There was some guy in the music department who had a collection of African music, and I'd come to his house and play drums. He'd make recordings of me, and then at his parties he had a game that he called Africa or Ithaca in which he'd play some recordings of drum music, and the idea was to guess whether what you were hearing was manufactured in the continent of Africa or locally. So I must have been fairly good at imitating African music by that time. When I came to Caltech, I used to go down to the Sunset Strip a lot. One time, there was a group of drummers led by a big fellow from Nigeria called Ukonu, playing this wonderful drum music, just percussion, at one of the nightclubs. The second-in-command who was especially nice to me, invited me to come up on the stage with them and play a little. So I got up there with the other guys and played along with them on the drums for a little while. I asked the second guy if Ukonu ever gave lessons, and he said yes. So I used to go down to Ukonu's place, near Century Boulevard, where the Watts riots later occurred, to get lessons in drumming. The lessons weren't very efficient. He would stall around, talk to other people, and be interrupted by all kinds of things. But when they worked, they were very exciting, and I learned a lot from him. At dances near Ukonu's place, there would be only a few whites, but it was much more relaxed than it is today. One time they had a drumming contest, and I didn't do very well. They said my drumming was too intellectual. Theirs was much more pulsing.
One day, when I was at Caltech, I got a very serious telephone call. Hello? This is Mr. Trowbridge, master of the Polytechnic School. The Polytechnic School was a small private school which was across the street diagonally from Caltech. Mr. Trowbridge continued in a very formal voice. I have a friend of yours here who would like to speak to you. Okay. Hello, Dick. It was Ukono. It turned out the master of the Polytechnic School was not as formal as he was making himself out to be and had a great sense of humor. Ukono was visiting the school to play for the kids, so he invited me to come over and be on the stage with him and play along. So we played for the kids together. I played bongos, which I had in my office, against his big tumba drum. Bukonu had a regular thing. He went to various schools and talked about the African drums and what they meant and told about the music. He had a terrific personality and a grand smile. He was a very, very nice man. He was just sensational on the drums. He had records out and was here studying medicine. He went back to Nigeria at the beginning of the war there, or before the war and I don't know what happened to him. After Ukuno left, I didn't do very much drumming, except at parties once in a while, entertaining a little bit. One time I was at a dinner party at the Leighton's house, and Bob's son Ralph and a friend asked me if I wanted to drum. Thinking that they were asking me to do a solo, I said no. But then they started drumming on some little wooden tables, and I couldn't resist. I grabbed a table too, and the three of us played on these little wooden tables which made lots of interesting sounds. Ralph and his friend Tom Rudishauser liked playing drums, and we began meeting every week just to ad lib, develop rhythms, and work stuff out. These two guys were real musicians. Ralph played piano, and Tom played the cello. All I had done was rhythms, and I didn't know anything about music, which, as far as I could tell, was just drumming with notes. But we worked out a lot of good rhythms, and played a few times at some of the schools to entertain the kids. We also played rhythms for a dance class at a local college, something I learned was fun to do when I was working at Brookhaven for a while, and called ourselves the Three Quarks, so you can figure out when that was. One time I went to Vancouver to play to the students there, and they had a party with a real hot rock-type band playing down in the basement. The band was very nice. They had an extra cowbell lying around, and they encouraged me to play it. So I started to play a little bit, and since their music was very rhythmic, and the cowbell is just an accompaniment, you can't screw it up. I really got hot. After the party was over, the guy who organized the party told me that the band leader said, Jeez, who was that guy who came down and played on the cowbell? He can really knock out a rhythm on that thing. And by the way, that big shot this party was supposed to be for, you know, he never came down here. I never did see who it was. Anyhow, at Caltech there's a group that puts on plays, some of the actors are Caltech students, others are from the outside. When there's a small part, such as a policeman who's supposed to arrest somebody, they get one of the professors to do it. It's always a big joke. The professor comes on and arrests somebody and goes off again. A few years ago, the group was doing Guys and Dolls, and there was a scene where the main guy takes the girl to Havana, and they're in a nightclub. The director thought it would be a good idea to have the bongo player on the stage in the nightclub be me. I went to the first rehearsal, and the lady directing the show pointed to the orchestra conductor and said, Jack will show you the music. Well, that petrified me. I don't know how to read music. I thought, 
all I had to do was get up there on the stage and make some noise. Jack was sitting by the piano, and he pointed to the music and said, Okay, you start here, you see, and you do this. Then I play. Plonk, plonk, plonk. He played a few notes on the piano. He turned the page. Then you play this, and now we both pause for a speech, you see, here. And he turned some more pages and said, Finally, you play this. He showed me this music that was written in some kind of crazy pattern of little X's in the bars and lines. He kept telling me all this stuff, thinking I was a musician, and it was completely impossible for me to remember any of it. Fortunately, I got ill the next day and couldn't come to the next rehearsal. I asked my friend Ralph to go for me, and since he's a musician, he should know what it's all about. Ralph came back and said, It's not so bad. First, at the very beginning, you have to do something exactly right because you're starting the rhythm out for the rest of the orchestra, which will mesh in with it. But after the orchestra comes in, it's a matter of ad-libbing, and there will be times when we have to pause for speeches. But I think we'll be able to figure it out from the cues the orchestra conductor gives. In the meantime, I had gotten the director to accept Ralph, too, so the two of us would be on the stage. He'd play the tumba, and I'd play the bongos. So that made it a hell of a lot easier for me. So Ralph showed me what the rhythm was. It must have been only twenty or thirty beats, but it had to be just so. I'd never had to play anything just so, and it was very hard for me to get it right. Ralph would patiently explain, left hand and right hand, and two left hands, then right. I worked very hard, and finally, very slowly, I began to get the rhythm just right. It took me a hell of a long time, many days to get it. A week later we went to the rehearsal and found there was a new drummer there. The regular drummer had quit the band to do something else, and we introduced ourselves to him. Hi, and we're the guys who are going to be on stage for the Havana scene. Oh, hi, hey, let me find the scene here. And he turned to the page where our scene was, took out his drumming stick, and said, Oh, you start off the scene with... And with his stick against the side of his drum, he goes, Bing bong, bang a bang, bing a bing, bang bang, at full speed, while he was looking at the music. What a shock that was to me. I had worked for four days to try to get that damn rhythm, and he could just patter it right out. Anyway, after practicing again and again, I finally got it straight and played it in the show. It was pretty successful. Everybody was amused to see the professor on stage playing the bongos, and the music wasn't so bad. The ad-libbing part was different in every show and was easy, but that part at the beginning that had to be the same, that was hard. In the Havana nightclub scene, some of the students had to do some sort of dance that had to be choreographed. So the director had gotten the wife of one of the guys at Caltech, who was a choreographer working at that time for Universal Studios, to teach the boys how to dance. She liked our drumming, and when the shows were over, she asked us if we would like to drum in San Francisco for a ballet. What? Yes. She was moving to San Francisco and was choreographing a ballet for a small ballet school there. She had the idea of creating a ballet in which the music was nothing but percussion. She wanted Ralph and me to come over to her house before she moved and play the different rhythms that we knew, and from those she would make up a story that went with the rhythms. Ralph had some misgivings but I encouraged him to go along with this adventure. I did insist, however, that she not tell anybody there that I was a professor of physics, Nobel Prize winner, or any other baloney. 
I didn't want to do the drumming if I was doing it because, as Samuel Johnson said, if you see a dog walking on his hind legs, it's not so much that he does it well as that he does it at all. I didn't want to do it if I was a physics professor doing it at all. We were just some musicians she had found in Los Angeles who were going to come up and play this drum music that they had composed. So we went over to her house and played various rhythms we had worked out. She took some notes, and soon after, that same night, she got this story cooked up in her mind and said, Okay, I want fifty-two repetitions of this, forty bars of that, whatever of this, that, this, that. We went home, and the next night we made a tape at Ralph's house. We played all the rhythms for a few minutes, and then Ralph made some cuts and splices with his tape recorder to get the various lengths right. She took a copy of our tape with her when she moved and began training the dancers with it in San Francisco. Meanwhile, we had to practice what was on the tape. Fifty-two cycles of this, forty cycles of that, and so on. What we had done spontaneously and spliced earlier, we now had to learn exactly. We had to imitate our own damn tape. The big problem was counting. I thought Ralph would know how to do that because he's a musician, but we both discovered something funny. The playing department in our minds was also the talking department for counting. We couldn't play and count at the same time. When we got to our first rehearsal in San Francisco, we discovered that by watching the dancers, we didn't have to count, because the dancers went through certain motions. There were a number of things that happened to us because we were supposed to be professional musicians and I wasn't. For example, one of the scenes was about a beggar woman who sifts through the sand on a Caribbean beach where the society ladies, who had come out at the beginning of the ballet, had been. The music that the choreographer had used to create this scene was made on a special drum that Ralph and his father had made rather amateurishly some years before, and out of which we had never had much luck in getting a good tone. But we discovered that if we sat opposite each other on chairs and put this crazy drum between us on our knees, with one guy beating bitta 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 rapidly with two fingers, constantly, the other fella could push on the drum in different places with his two hands and change the pitch. Now it would go Buddha 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 Bidda Bide 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 Buddha 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 Bada 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 Bide Bada creating a lot of interesting sounds. Well, the dancer who played the beggar woman wanted the rises and falls to coincide with her dance. Our tape had been made arbitrarily for this scene. So she proceeded to explain to us what she was going to do. First, I do four of these movements this way. Then I bend down and sift through the sand this way for eight counts. Then I stand and turn this way. I knew damn well I couldn't keep track of this, so I interrupted her. Just go ahead and do the dance. I'll play along. But don't you want to know how the dance goes? You see, after I've finished the second sifting part, I go for eight counts over this way. It was no use. I couldn't remember anything, and I wanted to interrupt her again. But then there was this problem. I would look like I was not a real musician. Well, Ralph covered for me very smoothly by explaining, Mr. Feynman has a special technique for this type of situation. He prefers to develop the dynamics directly and intuitively as he sees you dance. Let's try it once that way, and if you're not satisfied, we can correct it. Well, she was a first-rate dancer and you could anticipate what she was going to do. If she was going to dig into the sand, she would get ready to go down into the sand. 
Every motion was smooth and expected, so it was rather easy to make the bzzzes and bishes and buddhas and biddas with my hands quite appropriate to what she was doing, and she was very satisfied with it. So we got past that moment where we might have had our cover blown. The ballet was kind of a success. Although there weren't many people in the audience, the people who came to see the performances liked it very much. Before we went to San Francisco for the rehearsals and the performances, we weren't sure of the whole idea. I mean, we thought the choreographer was insane. First, the ballet has only percussion. Second, that we're good enough to make music for a ballet and get paid for it was surely crazy. For me, who had never had any culture, to end up as a professional musician for a ballet was the height of achievement, as it were. We didn't think that she'd be able to find ballet dancers who would be willing to dance to our drum music. As a matter of fact, there was one prima donna from Brazil, the wife of the Portuguese consul, who decided it was beneath her to dance to it. But the other dancers seemed to like it very much, and my heart felt good when we played for them for the first time in rehearsal. The delight they felt when they heard how our rhythms really sounded, they had until then been using our tape played on a small cassette recorder, was genuine, and I had much more confidence when I saw how they reacted to our actual playing. And from the comments of the people who had come to the performances, we realized that we were a success. The choreographer wanted to do another ballet to our drumming the following spring, so we went through the same procedure. We made a tape of some more rhythms, and she made up another story, this time set in Africa. I talked to Professor Munger at Caltech and got some real African phrases to sing at the beginning. Gawa, banyuma, gawa, woe, or something like that. And I practiced them until I had them just so. Later we went up to San Francisco for a few rehearsals. When we first got there, we found they had a problem. They couldn't figure out how to make elephant tusks that looked good on stage. The ones they had made out of papier-mâché were so bad that some of the dancers were embarrassed to dance in front of them. We didn't offer any solution, but rather waited to see what would happen when the performances came the following weekend. Meanwhile, I arranged to visit Werner Erhard, whom I had known from participating in some conferences he had organized. I was sitting in his beautiful home, listening to some philosophy or idea he was trying to explain to me, when all of a sudden I was hypnotized. What's the matter? he said. My eyes popped out as I exclaimed. Tusks! Behind him on the floor were these enormous, massive, beautiful ivory tusks. He lent us the tusks. They looked very good on stage, to the great relief of the dancers. Real elephant tusks, super size, courtesy of Werner Erhard. The choreographer moved to the East Coast and put on her Caribbean ballet there. We heard later that she entered that ballet in a contest for choreographers from all over the United States, and she finished first or second. Encouraged by this success, she entered another competition, this time in Paris, for choreographers from all over the world. She brought a high-quality tape we had made in San Francisco and trained some dancers there in France to do a small section of the ballet. That's how she entered the contest. She did very well. She got into the final round, where there were only two left, a Latvian group that was doing a standard ballet with their regular dancers to beautiful classical music, and a maverick from America, with only the two dancers that she had trained in France, dancing to a ballet which had nothing but our drum music. She was the favorite of the audience, but it wasn't a popularity contest. 
and the judges decided that the Latvians had won. She went to the judges afterwards to find out the weakness in her ballet. Well, madame, the music was not really satisfactory. It was not subtle enough. Controlled crescendos were missing. And so we were at last found out. When we came to some really cultured people in Paris who knew music from drums, we flunked out. Altered States I used to give a lecture every Wednesday over at the Hughes Aircraft Company, and one day I got there a little ahead of time and was flirting around with the receptionist as usual when about a half a dozen people came in, a man, a woman, and a few others. I had never seen them before. The man said, Is this where Professor Feynman is giving some lectures? And this is the place, the receptionist replied. The man asked if his group can come to the lectures. I don't think you'd like them much, I say. They're kind of technical. Pretty soon the woman, who was rather clever, figured it out. I bet you're Professor Feynman. It turned out the man was John Lilly, who had earlier done some work with dolphins. He and his wife were doing some research into sense deprivation and had built some tanks. Isn't it true that you're supposed to get hallucinations under those circumstances, I asked excitedly. That is true indeed. I had always had this fascination with the images from dreams and other images that come to the mind that haven't got a direct sensory source, and how it works in the head, and I wanted to see hallucinations. I had once thought to take drugs, but I got kind of scared of that. I love to think, and I don't want to screw up the machine. But it seemed to me that just lying around in a sense deprivation tank had no physiological danger, so I was very anxious to try it. I quickly accepted the Lily's invitation to use the tanks, a very kind invitation on their part, and they came to listen to the lecture with their group. So the following week I went to try the tanks. Mr. Lily introduced me to the tanks, as he must have done with other people. There were lots of bulbs like neon lights with different gases in them. He showed me the periodic table and made up a lot of mystic hokey-poke about different kinds of light that have different kinds of influences. He told me how you get ready to go into the tank by looking at yourself in the mirror with your nose up against it, all kinds of wicky-wack things, all kinds of gorp. I didn't pay any attention to the gorp, but I did everything because I wanted to get into the tanks, and I also thought that perhaps such preparations might make it easier to have hallucinations. So I went through everything according to the way he said. The only thing that proved difficult was choosing what color light I wanted especially as the tank was supposed to be dark inside. A sense deprivation tank is like a big bathtub, but with a cover that comes down. It's completely dark inside, and because the cover is thick, there's no sound. There's a little pump that pumps air in, but it turns out you don't need to worry about air because the volume of air is rather large, and you're only in there for two or three hours, and you don't really consume a lot of air when you breathe normally. Mr. Lilly said that the pumps were there to put people at ease, so I figured it's just psychological and asked him to turn the pump off, because it made a little bit of noise. The water in the tank has Epsom salts in it to make it denser than normal water, so you float in it rather easily. The temperature is kept at body temperature, or 94 or something. He had it all figured out. There wasn't supposed to be any light, any sound, any temperature sensation, no nothing. Once in a while, you might drift over to the side and bump slightly, 
or because of condensation on the ceiling of the tank, a drop of water might fall. But these slight disturbances were very rare. I must have gone about a dozen times, each time spending about two and a half hours in the tank. The first time, I didn't get any hallucinations. But after I had been in the tank, the lilies introduced me to a man billed as a medical doctor, who told me about a drug called ketamine, which was used as an anesthetic. I've always been interested in questions related to what happens when you go to sleep, or what happens when you get conked out, so they showed me the papers that came with the medicine and gave me one-tenth of the normal dose. I got this strange kind of feeling which I've never been able to figure out whenever I tried to characterize what the effect was. For instance, the drug had quite an effect on my vision. I felt I couldn't see clearly.